Hi, everyone. This is Samira Daswani, the host of the podcast, The Patient from Hell. You've been listening in over the last couple of months with us, so thank you for sticking in with us. And for the, those of you just joining us, today's a very special episode for me. We have uh, as our guest today, Carolyn Taylor. She is someone I met now a few months ago, but her story really resonated across a whole bunch of different levels. And I'm hoping that we get to dive into things like the intersection of art and global health, the intersection of cancer and government, and then what it means to do change and make change in the world across decades of your life. Carolyn, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you today. So I'd love to get started kind of at the beginning with you. Where did all this begin? And can you just tell us what that start of your journey looked like? Yeah, so uh, in 2006, I was 43 um, and surprisingly diagnosed with ovarian and endometrial cancers. Super lucky, early diagnosis. Um, also, there was a lot of uh, breast cancer in my family. My mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer at 25. Her mother died from metastatic breast cancer. Her mother had some sort of female cancer. So I'd been really diligent about screening as my OB-GYN had also been. Um, because I didn't have children and because of all these risks, she kind of screened me for ovarian cancer. So it was just really opportunistic that we found it. Um, so it was really early stage. And then my gynonc did a lot of global work. Um, so at that time, I was working as a food photographer. That was my full-time gig for many, many years. And um, But I was like, you know, I, I knew I was super fortunate that particularly a diagnosis of ovarian cancer is never at an early stage. So I was stage 1B. So both my ovaries had cancer in them and stage 1 um, endometrial. So just you don't get diagnosed like that. So I wanted to do something to give back, but right, like I'm a food photographer. So what was I going to do? Um, and then like two years after my diagnosis, like this still kept thinking about what was I going to do? Um, I got a random email from British Airways, which was a contest that offered 10 free business class flights anywhere in the world. And you had to write three essays talking about how you would use those flights and what you would do with them. And I had one of those kind of epiphany moments in your life, you know, where, um, you know, it just came to me that I wanted to do a photo documentary project on the global face of cancer to show that regardless of where you live, the color of your skin, what God you believe in cancer affects us all. Um, so I hit that send button and I forgot about it for a few months. And then one day I came into work and found out that I had won. Now I actually had to do it, right? So how do you find places to go to, people to meet with? How do you how do you start to even do this? And how do I translate from, you know, photographing a pork chop to a person with cancer? So a big learning curve. Um, I first reached out to World Health Organization. And that's when I found out that they had like three people that worked full time on cancer. This was the end of 2009. Um, so they referred me to the Union for International Cancer Control, which is an NGO and based in Geneva. It's a, um, a patient group organization. So they convene um, hospitals and patient groups and, and clinicians um, from around the world. They also host every two years the World Cancer Congress. So um, my first trip was to Switzerland to meet with them. 
and they helped me then uh, kind of plan what that next year I had to do all these flights in a year, what that would look like in the 14 countries then that I traveled to over the next year, interviewing patients, caregivers, and healthcare providers trying to give this kind of global face to cancer. I feel like I'm just talking incessantly, no. so I don't know if you want to jump. No, 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 keep going. This was great. You should absolutely keep talking. If you talk too much. So, yeah, so <laughs> on those 14 trips, I went to a lot of low and middle income countries. And what I saw was there was very little to nothing being done to support cancer patients and their families with education and information and supportive care services. So I founded a nonprofit organization called Global Focus on Cancer in an effort to address those issues. And so we started um, in the end of 2011. Um, Our first initiative was in 2012 in Vietnam. Um, And we've been going since then. Carolyn, so I want to go back to, so you've spent this year, you've interviewed so many people across four countries. What was the, so one of the outputs was the nonprofit, Mm -hmm. but you had all these photographs. Yeah. (laughs) What happened with the photographs? So um, the CDC, um, they have a museum called the David J. Sensor Museum, um, and they were doing a photo exhibit um, they wanted to do on um, survivors, the faces of cancer. So there were three different photographers, myself being one. So 50 of the images were in a, was a three-month exhibit at the, the museum at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. Um, Pfizer also housed them in their um um, lobby. They have a rather large lobby in New York, um, and they had them in an exhibit there as well. And then they're online, and we use them, um, you know, to really show a lot of the challenges um, and what people what people face. And I use a lot of the stories of the different people that I met to kind of drive across what the challenges are, particularly in low and middle income countries where you're looking at. 70 to 80 percent of patients being diagnosed in late stages of the disease, Um, 80 percent of patients dying within three years of their diagnosis, you know, this real lack of clinicians, of services. The first time I went to Tanzania, there were, um, you know, in 2011, there were four oncologists for a country of 45 million, two cobalt radiation machines. Um, In fact, there's still, there's 20, 23 countries, I think, in sub-Saharan Africa and Asia that don't have access to radiation therapy treatment at all. So these are those things that I saw, and I, I tried to use the stories and the photographs of real people to kind of get this data across. So it's you know a little better than looking at a pie chart. So that's actually part of the reason why I was so excited to talk to you, because you're one of the few people who I think understands both the sort of art side of it and the science side of it. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I started out my career doing art history and bioengineering and i've always been at that like funny intersection so i'd love if we can like dive into that for just a little bit more before we sort of talk about the nonprofit. so when yeah. you're communicating these stories it's been about a decade if not more since you took these photographs and documented these stories and you're telling these stories of people who you met briefly different country different culture can you talk a little bit more about that for us So, yeah, so I probably, and I continue to do it, you know, to talk to people and photograph them, um, even though I don't work as a photographer any longer. Um, You know, I think what resonates is everybody needs to tell their story. It's really important for people 
to have someone listen to their story. Um, it's, you know, a way for them to get out their experience and, and to, I guess, in a way, normalize it, equalize it with other people, have that shared kind of lived experience together. And, you know, there was one woman I met in India, actually, the very first person I met and who I talked to, who um, I was the very first person other than her husband, her daughter and her doctor. She mm-hmm. talked about she hadn't even shared the fact that she had cancer with her own sister because the stigma, it was so strong there. So, you know, in addition to getting their stories out and getting this data in kind of data out there in a more um I guess, digestible way for people in a humanistic way. Um, it also is this opportunity for people to share their story, to feel like I'm, I'm not just a number, you know, I'm a person, I'm not just a statistic. And and to share their that lived experience with someone else who's heard the words, you have cancer. Sometimes it's, it's easier for someone to talk to someone outside of their social circle or their, even their, um, you know, their networks. Um, it's it's really kind of we're all in the same kind of thing together, even though we may have different outcomes and, and different um, treatment protocols and wherever we are, you know, in Vietnam, I'd be sharing a bed with two other patients. So, um, but it's the shared lived experience, I think, that kind of transcends everything. And, and the images show that how we're so inter- interconnected in that way. I, I love that. I uh, actually, you, you got to my next question already, which is across these countries, what are the things you see that are similar? So it sounds like one of the things is the real shared experience, but also the thing that ties everyone together are the words, you have cancer. So yeah. it's universally translated to any language. You're going to go through something of a similar journey when you hear those words, because mm-hmm. it does to your point yeah. transcend. Race, so culture, that's something that I always think about too is in the work that we do in the nonprofit work. Um, you know, it's and it's something I was I just shared at World Cancer Congress. Um, when you're first diagnosed, like I know for me and I think for you too, you have no symptoms, you're not sick, you don't feel ill, you nothing's really wrong with you. The very first thing you experience is anxiety and distress. And it's the very last thing that's ever addressed. It's like the bottom of the list. And I talk to doctors about this all the time too. And they're um, they're not trained for it. It's the last thing they're trained. They're trained to like get that cancer, attack that cancer, but not deal with the distress and anxiety that accompanies a cancer patient's journey. And particularly at the point of diagnosis. So I think um, that's something that, I really see as this real shared experience. And then everybody having to get themselves within, you know, a week, you've got to get your your knowledge level up to where your doctor is, right? And um, which is impossible. And particularly in like a, a country where maybe access to information is really challenging and difficult to find or good information. There might be really, you know, bad information out there. There's so much stigma and myth. And then access to the internet is challenging often. So it's, um, you know, that, that shared experience of knowledge, needing to get knowledge as quickly as possible, anxiety and distress. Um, and then the journey that everybody shares together, which I hate that term journey, but it kind of, kind of is, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's really important to think about words and, and how we use words and how we define different things, you know, like, patient or uh, you know I often just say I was I'm a person who experienced cancer 
a diagnosis of cancer because I, I don't like the word survivor either because it means that people don't and which they don't. But, you know, it's, it's just terminology is so important in how we use words and listening to people is also so important and to how they need to express their, their feelings about a cancer diagnosis is incredibly valuable. Can you talk a bit more about why you hate the word journey? Oh, yeah. Well, it's not a, like it's not a journey any of us are choosing to go on, right? And it's like this, oh, like a journey seems to be this like positive thing. It's not. It's, you know, it's a treatment plan. It's a diagnosis of cancer. It's not this journey to like another time. It's, you know, it's just, I just think, uh, you know, there's a lot of, of terms that are used that, that try to make it nicer or, you know, make it more palatable, I guess. Um, it's not palatable. There's nothing ever palatable about a cancer diagnosis. So I, I don't like using those words. Um, I just don't. I try to be conscious of it. Sometimes you don't have a choice but to use them because it's they're accepted and they're well used. And But um, yeah, I think it, we need to be thoughtful about the words we use. I definitely agree with that. That's why I asked the question because it's something that I struggle with. I, I just haven't found a good alternative that is, I think, within within the kind of insular community that is survivors, caregivers, patients who've gone through it. You can understand the nuance in it. There is like each of these words are loaded with meaning, and the minute mm-hmm. you step outside, it's like the meaning is lost. Yeah, so I, I've yeah. been struggling with how do you communicate that, actually. And I, I think we should all probably think about it. We should do some big roundtable, like redefining the terms and understanding the terms. And I know, like, care partner has been more, um, they use carer in the UK and in Australia. Interestingly, in, Aus- in Australia, they use um, consumer for a patient, which I think is a really interesting way to think about it. Because if you think of yourself as a consumer of a product, you're almost more, um, you, you feel like you have more of a say in it, like, cause you're the consumer and you know, you get more buy-in. I actually, at first I was really kind of affronted by that term. And then I was like, no, actually, I think I actually really like that term because um, I think it gives you more of a stake in it yeah. as opposed to like the patient, you know, yeah. you're the consumer, um, you are a patient, but it's not who you are, you you know, you are, this is particularly in the US, right, where this is a healthcare industry, it's not a healthcare system. It's so, so true, so true. Yeah, no, that's what I say all the time. I mean, we don't have a ministry yeah. of health, we don't have... Like it's all hospital based and where you go and your clinician, it's so specific. Um, you know, sometimes in other countries, it's certainly easier when there's four, four to choose from. <laughs> but, you know, then you're also like on a six month wait list for treatment. And uh... That was actually one of the things I was hoping to unpack with you, which is the role of government across these countries mm-hmm. and the role of government specifically in the delivery of cancer care. And I think you started touching on it in the U.S., right, which is it's a healthcare industry, not a system. Right. There isn't really a ministry of health. So like, what are these other like broad themes you've seen across these countries and the role of government? It's a part. One of the things that we're involved with is the International Cancer Control Partnership. So um, that looks at national cancer control plans. Like every country or a lot, most countries have a national cancer control plan or policy. What's so... 
like what's in that plan? What's in that policy? Like you, you, everyone can find out what it is in your country um, if you have one. But we also, th- this group is this huge group of, you know, um, really diverse partners like World Health Organization, National Cancer Institute, um, different groups from other countries, um, really trying to pull together to help countries build their cancer control plans. And then GFC's role is to kind of disseminate that information. Like how can we build that awareness through advocates, through the advocates in different countries? And then, you know, how can they advocate for what's in your cancer control plan or in your cancer control policy or add new things to it or, you know, make sure that it's actually they're meeting the needs of of what's addressed in your cancer control plan. So I think those are things that um, are really helpful to look across through different governments. And then advocates are going to be the ones who have to hold them to the fire, you know. And can you talk a little bit more about the role of advocacy across different countries? I'd imagine yeah, that so different countries have different degrees. Yeah, right. So we do a lot of work in Vietnam, so actually advocacy is illegal. Um, but... Wait, wait, did you say advocacy is illegal? Yeah. Did I just say that? Yeah. yeah oh. It's a communist uh, country, you know. It's so it's it's really challenging. It's not tech. It's not illegal, but it's 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 very challenging to do um so we look you know in our work there with um the different patient clubs um which aren't really advocacy organizations uh working to kind of bridge the gap between with them and the ministry and different partners mm-hmm. to build supportive services yeah. together through um without you know hardcore advocating you know demand policy change very difficult in a lot of countries also so there are a lot of advocates different countries different resources all um every country basically has some sort of advocacy cancer advocacy happening um we were just in the philippines for our sixth annual Southeast Asia Breast Cancer Symposium, they, they advocacy, different cancer advocacy organizations in the country actually in 2019, all came together, petitioned the ministry to include a cancer law in their you know, national policy. They all came together, all the different groups. Um, so now that became a law, but now it hasn't been enacted. So now they've got to keep going with it, right? So you may get these laws passed and you may, but still they don't, they're not implemented, right? So you've got to keep moving, keep pushing, keep working really mm-hmm. hard. Um, but so there's from all levels, from trying to get access to medications for certain drugs, access to, you know, a lot of countries can't screen. Um, there's no screening services. If you can't really treat mm-hmm. on a broad scale, it's it's unethical to screen. Um so you know some some patient some patient groups uh, will advocate you know for specific cancers or um, specific things like HPV vaccine. There's a huge push to eradicate cervical cancer right now. So how do we get vaccinations in? How do we get screening in place? You know, really trying to eradicate cancer. So I think there's just it exists everywhere. Advocacy. It's just how how easy it is to get things through and what the priorities are of each government. It's super challenging cancer because cancer is so many diseases, like 2000 or something plus, right? It's really hard to advocate specifically in the cancer space. So Carolyn, can I, can I ask you that? Cause I think what you just said, that there's something you just said that I, I'd love to kind of unpack a little bit. So we're talking about countries where resources and infrastructure just doesn't exist. Right. 
And I heard you say it's unethical to scream yeah, when if you can't treat. Yeah. So that resonates a lot. I grew up in India, and it, there's a lot of diversity in the Indian country. In India as a country, and there's a lot of variation in access as well, just in our yeah. country. So that definitely resonates. And I've had that same point of view, but my question for you is, where do you start? Right. So the resource stratified guidelines um, from NCCN and ASCO and um, WHO now has adopted, um, looking at those resource stratified guidelines kind of gives countries a, a broad overview of how to do this. And advocates should be well aware of this too. So it's like, if you have XXX, you can do this, right? So it looks like on the resource level of your country, like what you've got, what's available, and then what you should be doing, right, in terms of screening and treatment. So um, they're really fantastic guidelines across multiple different types of cancers. Um, so those are a great place to start. So in CCN, it's like National Comprehensive oh, Cancer Network. Network. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and American Society of Clinical Oncology, but you can find those like resource stratified cancer guidelines in a lot of places. And I think that that's a, a, they've been, you know, um, really those have been instrumental in kind of helping countries build frameworks around like and how to build their cancer control policies and resources, how they build up their resources and how to do that in an appropriate way that serves the population best. We'll definitely link to that, but I think that, that sounds like a good place for people to start. Um, I did have a follow-up for you on that. So that it sounds like that was put together by two out of three organizations that are very heavily U.S. I know NCCN has a global footprint. ASCO has a global footprint, mm. but they're very heavily U.S. driven. They are, but it was specifically done for low- and middle-income countries. Uh, so I'm guessing WHO had some say in it. So the reason WHO I bring that up definitely. is... So Ben Anderson, yeah, the, that whole group from WHO, yeah. Mm -hmm. The reason I bring that up is I think that talks about one of the tensions of global health that I, I know you know, and having worked in the space for such a long time, is how much, how much of this needs to come from the country itself and how much do we rely on the international community and what is that balance and... How have you seen that play out? Do you have any examples in there that you, you can share? Yeah, so that's something like we work really hard in at Global Focus to really, if it's not coming from within the country, it's not going to be sustainable and it's not going to be um, appropriate. So we look, everything we do has to be like resource and culturally appropriate. Um, and there has to be buy-in in the country. So like the way we work is we really look to um, kind of build the, what do I want to say? We will help support the development. Um, so we'll get like seed money and seed ideas um, based on what the resources and the culture somewhere are like, particularly based on this in Vietnam. So we work with our local partners to then develop or adapt existing, um, like we did this with peer-to-peer -peer support, existing really successful models, peer support, woman-to-woman. -woman. We work with the developers of woman-to-woman -woman, uh, along with uh, our team in Vietnam to create a new program that is really appropriate for Vietnam, for the resources and the culture. So we did multiple adaptations 
of and iterations of a peer-to-peer support program. Um, and then we ran a clinical trial on it too, to prove the efficacy. So um, now we did that at four different sites, four different oncology centers in Vietnam. And um, so we're going to start publishing on that. But um, we did publish on the resource and cultural adaptation that we've done. But it really now the program is they feel like it's owned within the country that each site did it a little bit differently and adapted it to their different resources in each city or, or in each hospital because they were different kind of like a tertiary hospital and then um, a national hospital and a women's hospital. So we looked at different models and how that they adapt, were able to adapt for each setting. And this is what's so important. Now, the ownership is there and they're looking um, through the Ministry of Health to provide funding to continue the program and expand the program. So this is why it has to come from like a partnership, a really deep partnership, but we take the back seat always to what it is, but we help fund like the seed, seed it and, and build the implementation in, a, in the best way. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Can I ask you one more question on this? So like when you look across countries and you look at kind of the role of the local, the government, national, local, regional, depending on kind of country size, and look at cancer programs that have been implemented either on their own or in partnership with an international organization, are there any models that you can point to being like, they did it really well and here are the learnings from it? Um, there's not that much, it, like in supportive care, there's just not that much out there. Um, so a lot of what I see, unfortunately, is academic institutions going in and, um, you know, mining the data that they need for their grants um, and not necessarily building sustainable programs within. So there's, you know, this new, like, implementation science um is looking to kind of address that more and make it more sustainable. And there definitely is like NCI is making a significant push to um, really when they're funding things and it, if it's something that's happening in a lower middle income country that um, there's more capacity building within the country happening than just this kind of going in and, you know, mining data or um, volunteerism sort of thing that I'm not a big fan of. Totally okay. <laughs> I meant in the same vein, though, role of pharma, because what, more than 80% of patients enrolled in clinical trials are ex-US, but yet the pharma companies are mostly US, not all, but mostly heavily US-based. Yeah, so it's hard to run clinical trials in low and middle income countries, just because there's not capacity, the clinicians don't have the capacity to do it. Um, and there's also this real fear around it because of what's been done in the past. Um, so, uh, you know, just it's challenging. They're trying, people are trying to get more um, diversity in clinical trials, trying to do them in more low resource settings. Um, it will benefit people in those settings dramatically if we can kind of build that up. And there's definitely an, an, like incentives and initiatives going on to kind of build that in, um, but it's going to take a while unfortunately so they're going to be based in europe or the u.s and australia high resource yeah a little bit more being done in latin america for sure but africa and southeast asia is a little bit challenging still i see i see so given all of this in the last 
what, two decades maybe. What have you seen dramatically change? Because the picture the picture that's being painted still feels a little bleak, which is fine if it still is bleak. I'm just curious if there are things that have actually changed. Or are we really saw the point where in 2022, 2023, the picture looks still pretty bleak. It's pretty bleak. I mean, there there were number there was new numbers in the U.S. that actually downstaged this. Like we we reduced mm-hmm. cancer. I mean, an IARC just came out with their you know alcohol is the number one now carcinogen for cancer, like the number one over smoking, which is really interesting. Um, so um, there's going to be a lot of incentive to for alcohol programs um for people not to drink at all now they're saying not even a glass of wine isn't good like you really shouldn't drink at all if you want to reduce your cancer risk um so you know i don't know will we see things change with lifestyle i mean the numbers are bleak they're still bleak particularly in low resource settings you know, you're starting in some countries, like in Vietnam, we're definitely seeing, particularly for breast cancer, um, the staging moved down a bit. So more more stage two and three and less stage three and four, which is really great because there's been more awareness and education. And, um, you know, we've got, there's a bunch of support groups now. And um, so we have seen some like movement there, but, um, you know, there's still so many cancers that there's no screening, like, like ovarian, like you know, lung, like there's so many cancers that are still just pancreas, it's going to be late stage. And, and then rare cancers that get very little um, funding because they're rare and there's not enough, you know, patients to run good trials or to produce medicines. And that's, that's another pharma thing, you know, that um, they're only going to invest where they can make money. So if you have a rare cancer, you're kind of screwed, um, which is, is not fair obviously, but again, these are industries and not healthcare systems. There's so much in what you said that I want to unpack. <laughs> Let's maybe start with, so the picture is so bleak uh, across a whole bunch of reasons that yes, we're stay- seeing sort of downstaging. Uh, can we spend a bit of time talking about what that means? Because I'm not sure everybody will understand what downstaging means. So, right. So like in Vietnam, when I first went there, um, 80% of women were diagnosed at stage three or four when they were diagnosed with breast cancer, which is the most prevalent cancer there. Um, and that um, now, 10 years later, 11 years, 12 years later, we're seeing um, women now coming in earlier. So they're not waiting so long. They're getting screened. They're identifying when they have a lump. They're not waiting to go. They're going earlier. So they understand there's more information. There's more understanding. So they're downstaging the disease to mm-hmm. not such a late stage, um, which is great. It's great to see it, but I think they're only seeing it in breast. I mean, and then there's, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, cervical cancer is like the number one cancer. Um, which is a preventable, curable, treatable cancer. But because they don't have the screening in place and uh, um, um, there's not the education or awareness around getting screened, um, you know, pap smear is really expensive and challenging. In some countries, they only have one, two pathologists. So, you know, you don't even think about that infrastructure or like why there's no um, 
radiation therapy, there's, you know, not the physicists who run the machines and stuff too. So you have to think of the whole stratum of like care and, and delivery services and who you need to fit into that. But, um, you know, cervical cancer, so there's this huge push for vaccination, which, you know, works, uh, boys and girls need to be vaccinated. Um, and then moving to HPV testing, um, because it's an easier, um, HPV is causes, I think, something like 97% of all cervical cancers. I could have just made that number up, but I'm pretty sure that's about it. Um, you still need to be screened, but HPV is um, is very easy to test for, human papilloma virus. And, um, you know, through a um, some women can do self-sampling even. There's been really great testing on that that's been done in Central America because of the stigma around a cervical exam. Um, so there's lots of ways that people are looking at building awareness and education information. And also what I think is really important is making looking at patient-centered care. So identifying how patients want to be screened. You know, if people, if you don't, if you don't understand it and you don't want to go, like you're not going to go, you're not going to get screened. So what the process that they've been doing in Central America has been great, particularly in El Salvador, Basic Health International has been doing this really great work in women doing sampling HPV testing. You can do it at home. They bring the test back. There's no invasives. I mean, who wants to go for a cervical screening? Nobody. Um, it's important, like you should do it. That's how it saved my life. But, um, you know, you don't have to do it as frequently if you have the education and awareness and you're using the right tools. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I'm going to take a slight pivot on IARC or IACR. I got this wrong. The alcohol being number one carcinogen report just came out. Oh, IARC. Yeah, International Agency for Research in Cancer, WHO. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So they just came out with that data. Mm-hmm. So alcohol number one, followed by cigarette smoking. I think an environmental, yeah, environmental, environmental like, yeah, the, which is like smoke and yeah, yeah, all the fat, I think. Yeah. Okay. And pollution that, and yeah. So that feels like a pretty big uh, shift that's going to be coming in the next five yeah. or so years for global health. Yeah. Um, yeah. Alcohol. I mean, and that was a huge, huge thing. Yeah. So they actually, they, they announced it at our Southeast Asia breast cancer symposium. She first presented on it and then at, at, um, world health, uh, world cancer Congress was the big real announcement. And, you know, we were all like, (laughs) like, I like a glass of wine, but, um, yeah, it is, I guess, you know, yeah, I think like young women drinking heavily in colleges and young men too. Um, alcohol is like not great for you. Apparently, <laughs> uh, it's really bad for you in every way. <laughs> but it's so socially acceptable and so such an important component of social activity and life. And it's going to be interesting to see. You know, smoking was always. Um, polarizing right so alcohol not so much so it's it's going to be really interesting to see how this nets out and how it plays out and how hard that alcohol lobby is going to fight 
I mean, a part of what I did was one of my big clients, many of my clients, when I was a photographer, food photographer, were liquor clients. I used to shoot that stuff all the time. So Karen, I guess I have two questions for you. So you are wearing two hats. One is a survivor. Sorry, I know you don't have the word, but just just it's a person who's experienced <laughs> diagnosis. There we go. It's such a mouthful. <laughs> uh, there we go. You are a person who has experienced a diagnosis of cancer. <laughs> and I'm sitting here many years later <laughs> talking yeah. about it and working in it. So yeah. from the personal lens, how does that factor into your life? And then as a professional, you work in global health, you're working across countries. The whole mission of everything you do is to reduce reduce cancer uh, rates, improve the experience, improve supportive services. I'm imagining that just that data that came out recently is going to probably change your strategy as well. So like personally and professionally, how, how does this land for you? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, I know. Hard question. <laughs> No, um, yeah, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to see. Like, I'm going to see more of what the data comes out, what the data sets are, what the recommendations are, and um, where you position it. So, I mean, a lot of our work is more in supportive care when p- people are first diagnosed and trying to go through the process and trying to um, really um, help them navigate that, that process. About the journey, about whatever it is, <laughs> um, but navigate their diagnosis, um, and then again provide you know some educational materials. We haven't worked that much in preventative, um, but that definitely comes into play with certain things. So I think, yeah, we're going to have to talk about that. We're going to have to say, okay, so maybe if we're having a dinner function we're having our southeast asia breast cancer symposium we don't serve wine at dinner so i think i think those are conscious things we can all do i know who no longer serves alcohol at any function they stopped two weeks ago (laughs) when that announcement (laughs) came out who no more no alcohol being served at any who function any longer I'm glad they did it after their announcement, not before. <laughs> so you know, it's it's going to be oh, wow. this, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be mm. it's going to take a long time to get. I mean, look, it's people still smoke, right? People know, people know for a long time how bad it is, and people still smoke. So I don't, I don't, I don't know what this is, how this is going to affect alcohol. I think people are going to are not going to necessarily listen to this or heed this in any way i i think it's going to take a long time no, for the just look at smoking uh, i mean smoking took what like 1930s all the way though early early yeah. 2000s and it was only the taxation that happened in the u.s i really been dropped uh, yeah was, yeah that's totally it it became too expensive yeah. mm-hmm. but in asia you know it's super pervasive and in um in the middle east it's it's a really it's really strong in Eastern Europe, super heavy smoking. Like it's hard to walk around sometimes. Yeah, so it almost feels like we're at the very, very nascent beginnings of the next kind of wave of yeah. removing a carcinogen from our life, but it's, it's going to take us a while. It's going to, yeah. To your point, mm-hmm. this is going to be harder than uh, cigarette smoking for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's just such a huge part of, of social events. Like you think of making it anything celebratory, you're having a glass of champagne or something, right? You know, so it's it's really going to be this lifestyle shift. Um, and in countries where, you know, like France, I'm like, they're never going to go from this. But it, it's super interesting to see what, what it's going to be. I mean, moderation for sure, but they're saying even, you know, you just shouldn't drink, so. We'll see where it goes. That's a wait and watch what happens moment. Um, there's I'm a tie to it, uh, though, which was the healthcare industry versus the healthcare system. It's come up yeah. a few times in our, in our conversation today. So I'd love for us, kind of in the spirit of like wrapping wrapping up this conversation, although I feel as though you and I can keep talking for hours and hours. Um, can we help yeah. people define that? Because I'm not sure people fully understand the difference between a healthcare system and healthcare industry and why the healthcare industry makes the work you're doing so hard. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why we've been quite successful in Vietnam. So it's um, because it's a centralized healthcare system. There are some private hospitals there, but they're few and far between. Um, but so you can work on this system-wide basis to incorporate programs um, and, and care. So it works quite nicely that way. Um, when you look at it, the U.S., it's so fragmented, right? If once you go from one hospital, one doctor, I mean, it's all on profitability, right? So these doctors, I used to go to a very small little practice, which is now a huge practice, um, and it keeps growing. Now they were just bought by um an insurance company actually so now my medical doctor's care is run by an insurance company so i think this is the models that are happening in the u.s and um so it's all about cost effectiveness um you know determining you know americans think oh we have the best healthcare system in the world we don't we by far we don't we don't have the best outcomes we have you know high rates of of people going bankrupt for treatment, unable to get drugs. Um, and it's because the lobby is for both um, the healthcare insurance industry and pharmaceutical industries. You know, it's all about profitability in the U.S. is that's our system, right? It's all about the mighty dollar. Um, so our healthcare is really compromised in that. So I wish people would would see a centralized healthcare system as being actually beneficial. It works super well in a lot of countries. Um, and if people have this fear that there's like death groups that decide on if you, if you qualify for treatment or not. Um, but it works really well in a lot of countries, like in social democratic countries, like you know Denmark, Finland, Norway, Sweden, they have incredible healthcare system in France. Um, Italy does as well. So, um, you know, and it's free for people. You pay a little bit more in taxes, but, you know, it's it's really quality care. And I think there's the, the healthcare industry in the U.S. has done its job to poison um, people's thoughts on, on universal healthcare um, for their own profitability. And I think that that's, um, you know, just super unethical and, uh, I wish people could understand a little bit more and be a little more open to socialized medicine. I, I love that. I think it's a really wonderful place for us to sort of try and close out. And I'm going to ask you my last question. I have a feeling I know what the answer is going to be, but let me, uh, let's, uh, 
let's paint let's paint the vision which is if you had a magic wand uh-huh. and in the next 10 years your wildest dreams could come true what does the world look like 10 years from now I mean, I don't know what we can do in 10 years. I feel like it's this uphill battle all the time. And I don't mean to be defeatist because I have seen progress and I do see us moving forward. I mean, I would like to see more equitable care for people um, around diagnosis, being able to be diagnosed, being able to afford treatment. Um, You know, people often have to decide between their treatment and their kids' education or their kids' Um, feeding their kids and you know that's that's really challenging we do see some change in Vietnam there was a rash of women killing themselves committing suicide when they found out that they had cancer because they didn't want to bring the financial burden onto their families um, because they thought they wouldn't survive either so I think you know access access to medication access to treatment um, would be really helpful Um, and then again providing support for patients. Um, I mean, we particularly work in low resource settings. So in the U.S., what I'd like like to see is more patient-centered care, care based around preferences, um, you know, being asked, like, what do you want? And and also at, at our last Southeast Asia Breast Cancer Symposium, um, Nirmala Bhupathi, who's this, she's a great Malaysian researcher, she actually presented on, um, instead of looking at relieving distress, how can we increase joy and happiness in people? So thinking of, of ways to look at that instead of like reducing distress, how how do we bring joy and how do we bring happiness? Because even in a really shitty cancer diagnosis, um, you can find ways to be happy and to be thankful and to be joyful. Um, and I think if we think about, you know, like change the mindset a little bit and think about it, in more positive ways. Like I always say, you know, if someone told me, what is it, almost 17 years ago, um, you know, you're going to have cancer, but it's going to end up being the opportunity of a lifetime for you. I would have told them they were crazy, but like for me, it's been just that. So if we can kind of flip our mindset um, and look at the positives and and in all aspects, if, if the healthcare system can do that too, I think we could all really benefit from that. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us today. I love that closing and I don't want to <laughs> change it because I think there's a beautiful balance of brutal realism in there and the ability to take back control over life. Yeah. And I I like that a lot more over fake optimism. So thank you for yeah. keeping it really, really real. And no, my pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much. This podcast, show notes, and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.